0: The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For every living soul belongs to me. The father as well as the son, both alike, belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. Suppose there is a righteous man who does what is just and right, He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or lie with a woman during her period. He does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend at usury or take excessive interest. He withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges fairly between man and man. He follows my degrees and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. Suppose he has a violent son who sheds blood or does any of these other things, though the father has done none of them. He eats at the mountain shrines. He defiles his neighbor's wife. He oppresses the poor and needy. He commits robbery. He does not return what he took in pledge. He looks to the idols. He does detestable things. He lends it usury and takes excessive interest. Will such a man live? He will not, because he has done all these detestable things. He will surely be put to death, and his blood will be on his own head. But suppose this son has a son who sees all the sins his father commits, and though he sees them, he does not do such things. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. He does not oppress anyone or require a pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He withholds his hand from sin and takes no usury or excessive interest. He keeps my laws and follows my decrees. He will not die for his father's sin. He will surely live. But his father will die for his own sin because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong among his people. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? Since the son has done what is just and right, and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteous of the righteous righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. But if a wicked man turns away from all the sins he has committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, he will surely live. He will not die. None of the offenses he has committed will be remembered against him. Because of the righteous things he has done, he will live. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? But if a righteous man turns from his righteousness... And commits sin, and as the same detestable things the wicked man does, will he live? None of the righteous things he has done will be remembered. Because of the unfaithfulness he is guilty of, and because of the sins he has committed, he will die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Here, O house of Israel, is my way unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? If a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin, he will die for it. Because of the sin he has committed, he will die. But if a wicked man turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he will save his life. Because he considers all the offences he has committed and turns away from them, he will surely live. He will not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you, each one according to his ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed, and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Amen. So I'm just going to invite uh, my namesake uh, Matt up to uh, lead us this morning. Um, Alex Popkin earlier did ask as well uh, what a group of Matts is called. I suggested Mattai, and Matt suggested wisdom of Matt. So if anyone has any suggestions, feel free to come to us at the end of the service <laughs> and let us know. Um, but first, I'm just going to uh, pray for Matt, if that's okay, um, before you uh, begin. So, Lord, we just thank you for Matt this morning. We thank you um, for his dedication to you and his willingness to be obedient to to your words and hear what you've uh, been speaking to him throughout this week based on Ezekiel, Lord. And I just pray that what you've put on his heart, it comes from you and that you fill him with the Holy Spirit as he speaks today. And I also just ask that from what Matt says this morning, that even just a word, a sentence or the entire sermon, something will enter the hearts of every single person in this room this morning. So I just pray for your servant, Matt, and uh, yeah, just ask that you give him the words that you want him to say this morning to all of us.
1: In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.
2: Thank you very much, Matt. Um, I should have asked Matt to pray uh, for my voice, but it kind of lasts throughout this talk. So if you could be doing that for me as I go along, that would be great. Or maybe you want to pray that it gives out. That's fine as well. (laughs) I won't know. So, um, yes. Yeah, do pray for me. (coughs) The parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Does that proverb sound familiar to anybody? Of course it does, because you've all been keeping up with your restore reading in Jeremiah. So you've encountered it before. Um, He too, that prophet, predicted that its days were numbered. That the time when people were bandying that proverb around uh, would come to an end. And it basically means our choices don't really matter. We can't change anything. It's all been decided for us we're being punished for our parents' sins. And that's not fair, but that's just the way it is. And you can imagine why this was a popular saying amongst the the exiles in Ezekiel's day. They'd been deported to Babylon. They were far from their ruined homeland. And they felt really that they were being punished for uh, the sins that their ancestors had committed. They were just the innocent victims that were suffering the consequences. And of course... On one level, the proverb makes a lot of sense. The exile had come about as a result of the repeated unfaithfulness and idolatry of previous generations. And it has a wider ring of truth to it as well, doesn't it, to us in the room? Because we don't have to look very far to see that children often suffer for the mistakes of their parents. So in my own work with ex-prisoners, Uh, I see all the time the effects of what we call adverse childhood experiences. People come across that term, aces? Yeah. Yeah, Heather's nodding. The teachers in the room will know. So, for example, a young man today whose parent goes to prison, and that could be father or mother, has a two in three chance of growing up to serve a prison sentence themselves. The children of prisoners are three times more likely than the general population to develop a mental health problem. But it's not just within families that this proverb holds true. Uh, but In the prayers we were hearing about uh, situations in the world, uh, like climate change, pollution, the ecological crisis, these are all huge situations that we might feel completely powerless to do anything about. It would be easy to think that the damage has actually already been done before we even got there. It's too late to do anything now. We'll just have to live with the consequences. It's easy to think, think that way. But you can imagine what a mindset like that does for a people's morale, especially a people that happen to be living in exile, as Ezekiel's contemporaries were. Nothing really matters, does it? Because if they can't change the past, then that means the present and the future are set as well. Imagine what that does for a people's morality. If nothing matters, then there's no motivation for the exiles to change their ways, to live any different than their ancestors did. In their minds, if they're being punished anyway, then they might as well carry right on sinning. To quote another proverb, you might as well be hanged for a sheep as for a lamb. And this mindset actually still exists today in both religious settings and secular ones. We've all met people, haven't we, who uh, talk as if their lives are determined by invisible forces that, beyond their control, like karma. Or, uh, we all know that person who refuses to recycle because it won't make any difference in the long run. But there is nothing Christian about such fatalism. The proverb in our passage has another dangerous effect on the exiles as well. Because it encourages them to shift the blame for their, for their situation onto other people. And as humans, this is nothing new, is it? We all do it. We've done it since the Garden of Eden, where the man blames the woman and, the, and God for his uh, his sins, and the woman blames the serpent for hers. The Israelites blamed their ancestors because they lived in a community orientated culture, and they blamed God because they believed that he controlled all aspects of the world. Well, today in the West, we are much more individualistic than they are than they were. And that means that we have an even longer list of people that we like to blame uh, for the choices we make. We blame our genetics, we blame our upbringing, we blame the school system, the government, our personality type, the economy, violent video games, television, literally anything that will help us avoid taking responsibility. And worst of all, we join the exiles in blaming God.
1: Why did he make me like this?
2: Where it's this twin attitude of uh, fatalism on one hand and blame shifting on the other that Ezekiel wants <clears> to <throat> puncture. And he starts right in verse four. So if you've got your Bibles, feel free to follow along with me. Verse four says, for everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child, both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. So what this means is that every human being, both all of humanity is a collective, but also every single one of us as individuals, belongs to a personal God. Karma does not bind us. Our parents' choices, important as they are, do not define us. Our genetics, our society, our teachers, they may shape us, they will shape us, but they do not control us. We are all free to relate independently to God as moral creatures, and make our own choices about how we're going to do that that also means that each of us ultimately has nobody else to blame but ourselves. We are personally accountable to God for our choices. So it means that the exiles need to stop blaming the previous generation for their predicament, for their apathy, and they need to make their own decisions about how they're going to relate to Yahweh. Perhaps there are times when we need to hear that same challenge. In verse 4, Ezekiel has given his fellow exiles a huge theological principle to wrestle with. The one who sins is the one who will die. They it might not sound it, but that's actually really good news for them. Because it means that their actions do matter. And they aren't doomed by people or events that have gone before them. But it's also troubling for them. Because it means that their actions really do matter. God cares about their sins. And Ezekiel takes them through a case study to help them understand how this principle might work in the lives of three generations of an imaginary family. And we're going to try and do the same today. Um, we're blessed because we have uh, three generations of Godards here. Uh, so I'm sorry, I haven't asked you beforehand, but I'm going to pick on you. Um, you're going to be our imaginary family for today. Um, Liz, we're going to start with you. You're, you're our grandparent, okay? Generation one in, Ezekiel, in Ezekiel's little parable. You've taken care to honour God uh, throughout all the major areas of your life. You've shown integrity in your relationships honesty in how you've handled money, and you've stood up for people with less resources or power than yourself. Well done, Liz. Um, what's more, you've raised your children to do the same. Great stuff. So what do we think God's verdict is going to be for uh, generation one here? Life or death? Life. Great. There you go, Liz. You can relax. Well done. It's good news, isn't it? So our second generation, uh, Phil, are you happy to be <laughs> So, Phil, you've grown up learning, um, so I should have said that's a a summary of Liz's, none of this actually reflects on the people, just so you know, Um, it's particularly important in a second, this is how Liz has lived her life. Um, Phil, you've grown up learning all about God, uh, being taught right from wrong, you've seen this modelled by your parent, Uh, so common sense dictates that you should really follow their example, right? Nature and nurture are on your side, it's looking good for you. The exiles in Babylon would definitely expect you to reproduce what's been laid down for you. Hang on, though, because you take a look at your parents' life and you think, I can do better than that. I can be much richer, more influential, more successful, happier, if I just look out for number one a little bit more. You don't waste your money on giving it away. Instead, you invest it on where it will bring you the most return, the most pleasure. You keep your word when it suits you, but not otherwise. Other people can get out of your way or be trampled, Phil. So what do we think God's verdict is going to be on this generation? Life or death? Yeah. Death. Oh, sorry, Phil. They... <laughs> but It's really the third generation, so Hannah, you're going to stand in for us here, uh, that is critical in this case study. Because when Ezekiel starts talking about them, the ears of the exiles prick up. Now they're listening. Now Ezekiel's got their attention. Because finally they think he's reached the part about us. When they hear him describe this son as righteous and refusing to fall into the sinful patterns of his parents, they grow even more confident in their theory. And they expect him to say that despite being righteous, the son is going to be punished for his father's sins. Because that would reflect how they saw their exile,
1: right? Except Ezekiel doesn't say that.
2: This righteous son will live. Only the father will die. And when questioned about this, Ezekiel spells it out for them. Wickedness can't be inherited. If the exiles are being punished for sin, it will be their own and nobody else's. What's more, Righteousness can't be inherited any more than wickedness can. So this means that, Hannah, I'm sorry, you can't rely on on your righteous grandparent. The exiles can't rely on being descendants of Abraham and Jacob and Moses to spare them from judgment. Because as the saying goes, God has no grandchildren. He only has children. Everyone either has a direct relationship to God or no relationship at all. Just as we can't blame our parents for how we turned out. We can't piggyback on their faith either. So by this point, the poor exiles are probably feeling a little bit miserable. They weren't that happy before, it has to be said. Um, But at least they could take comfort in blaming other people or saying, oh, it's just the way the world is. But now this prophet has come along and he's taken even that away from them. He's rewritten their favorite proverb so that it now says, the children have eaten sour grapes. That's why their teeth are on edge they didn't choose to go into exile, may not have been their fault. But if they are failing to experience the covenant blessings of God during their exile, then that is because they are being unfaithful to the covenant in exile. Those who were pierced by Ezekiel's words must have felt utterly crushed by their sins, convicted with nowhere to turn. Must the sentence be death? I can hear you crying it out, Phil.
1: No. There is hope.
2: Ezekiel has just shown them that fatalism and despair are unthinkable for God's people. And he isn't about to leave them wallowing in those things now. There is hope because the sentence can change from death to life. And the sentence can change because they can change. We all have that choice. So having already shown that nobody is doomed by their parents' sins... Ezekiel says that we need not be doomed by our own sins either. To go back to our family case study from earlier, it means that those three different generations are not locked into their roles as righteous and wicked. It means that those of us who feel the weight of a lifetime's mistakes bearing down on us can choose to change direction. And the Bible calls this repentance. And God wants nothing more. Ezekiel says that. God is not some vindictive tyrant who enjoys punishing people for the sake of it. Now, True, he can't allow evil to go unpunished. His holiness forbids that. But his desire for us is always life, not death. And he rejoices when the wicked turn from their ways and live. And to those who consider themselves righteous, who look down their noses on the idea of God forgiving wicked people, Ezekiel has a pretty stern warning in this passage. Be careful. Don't get complacent. Because choice and change can work both ways. The righteous can become wicked, just as the wicked can become righteous. If the exiles want to experience the blessing of a relationship with God, they can. Ezekiel has improved their proverb yet again. The children can stop eating sour grapes. Other grapes are available. This, uh this raises another question, at least for me. How much does a wicked person need to change in order to become righteous? Does that question makes sense? Or vice versa, you know, how many times does a righteous person need to mess up before they lose their righteous tag and become wicked? And many ancient cultures fought in these terms. They thought that when a person died, um, their good deeds and bad deeds would be kind of weighed against each other. Uh, sort of like inner scales, and that that weighing would decide your fate somehow. So the Egyptians literally believed uh, that a person's heart would be weighed against a feather, and only if it was lighter than the feather would they be allowed into the afterlife. I think if you failed that test, your heart got eaten by some sort of crocodile. Um. Not ideal. So is, is that what Ezekiel was
1: teaching? No, he isn't saying that. Because that
2: would be salvation by works, wouldn't it? Not by faith. Ezekiel is saying that the difference between the wicked on the one hand and the righteous on the other is repentance. Which literally means to stop where you're going, turn around and run the other direction. Salvation is not a set of scales.
1: It is a signpost. What matters is
2: not the quantity of good and bad in our lives, but which direction we are pointing in. Are we orientated towards God or away from God?
1: In other words, do we have faith or not?
2: Friends, this was good news for the exiles. And it's good news for us. Because it means that we don't have to go through life worrying about whether we've done enough to tip the scales in our favor. We just have to make sure that we're running in the right direction, towards God. And if we're not, then the good news is that this morning
1: is not too late to start. But
2: what does Ezekiel actually mean by repentance? How do we make this change that he's talking about? Because he talks about getting a new heart and a new spirit, as if these are things that we can just go out and buy. I don't know about you, but I've never seen them in Little. If you let me know, I'd love to be able to know where they are. So does that mean that this is just a change that we have to make under our own steam, by trying really hard? we have to will a new heart and a new spirit into being within us? If so, then it sounds as if we're back to salvation by works, doesn't it? And that wouldn't be good news. We've all tried making New Year's resolutions, and seen them fail within a few weeks, or in my case, a few days, And if we're really honest, we know that our capacity to change ourselves is pretty limited, and that's with small things like giving up chocolate or doing more exercise. What Ezekiel is talking about is total transformation inside and out, a new heart and a new spirit which results in an entirely new way of living. We're kidding ourselves if we think we can make that kind of radical change just by trying really hard. We have to choose it, yes but it has to come from God. And there's a profound mystery here, isn't there? Repentance is both our responsibility and God's gift to us. We need to hold those two truths in tension, I think. Just like in this uh, passage from Philippians that I've got up on the screen, we need to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, whilst recognising that it is actually God that has saved us and who is working in us. We don't
1: save ourselves. So how does God save us? Where does this power to
2: make the the wicked man righteous actually come from? Well, for Ezekiel, that was a bit of a mystery. He knew God could change people, knew God could give a new heart and a new spirit. He knew God could make it possible for people to live in a way that fulfilled the law. But the way that that would actually work was hidden from them at that time. But for us as New Covenant believers, the means of God's grace have been revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the life of a righteous man, but died the death of a wicked one. Jesus has changed everything. He's turned that principle that we were talking about, the one who sins is the one who will die, he's turned it upside down and inside out. He has taken the penalty that should have fallen on those who failed to live righteous lives, and that is all of us in this room. More than that, his righteousness has been transferred to those who trust in what he's done for them. And even now we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside us, renewing our hearts and our minds day by day, and enabling us to live in a way that we never could have done before. That is the new heart and the new spirit promised by Ezekiel, but made possible only through what Christ has done. I don't know where you're at this morning. Perhaps you're confident that you're running towards God in faith and being transformed by him day by day. And you find yourself looking down on people with questionable lifestyles, may might want to do the same thing. Perhaps you've been following Christ for a while, but there have been moments recently where you know you've definitely not been moving in the right direction. Times when you've tried to change yourself just by trying really hard rather than relying on what he's done for you. Or maybe you've never made the choice to follow
1: Christ. Maybe you've never responded to God's offer and you feel
2: the weight of a lifetime of failure weighing you down. Whichever camp you find yourself in this morning, Ezekiel has a clear message for you. God wants you to live and have life in all its fullness. So repent and live. Turn around, run in the other direction, not in your own strength, but by the power
1: of the one who died for you, Jesus Christ. Amen.
2: If uh, anything that has been said today or God has been kind of speaking to you um, and it struck a chord and you'd like to take this opportunity to sort of reorientate yourselves towards God, to change direction, um, then we're going to have some space to do that now. I'm going to ask the band to, to come and play in the background for us. And I'm going to leave these words up on the screen They're from Psalm 51, which is a really famous psalm of repentance. And I encourage you, if you're not quite sure what words to pray, sometimes that can be a barrier for us, can't it? How do we pray? I encourage you to make this prayer your prayer, to really own it today. Uh, And use this space that the band are going to give us just to reflect on what God might be saying to you and what he wants you to do. Um, so the band are going to play quietly, and then they're going to lead us into our final uh, time of worship, and then I'll come and wrap it up, and if you'd like to pray with someone at the end of the service, I'll be at the front, I think other people might be around as well, please do come and grab us, we'd love to pray pray with you.